you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Peter. I know we finished up in Thessalonians, and I wasn't really sure where we're supposed to go next. And so I'm sure hoping it's 1 Peter, because that's what I studied all week. <laughs> um, I guess we'll know pretty shortly. <laughs> so y'all are most likely familiar with the Apostle Peter. He was known for his calm temper and patience and for not jumping ahead. Yeah, no. Peter, of any of the apostles, I, I, I identify most with Peter because I see a lot of my own foolishness in his behavior in the Gospels. He always knew what was best and he was trying to get ahead of the Lord and would tell the Lord what to do and it didn't really work out so well. You know. This is the same man writing this letter. Now it's inspired by God, and the Lord has grown him up a great deal. This is significantly later in time when he is writing uh, this, this letter. It's not written to any specific individual or to any specific church. Um, sometimes I'll call it a general epistle. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter, but it's to uh, a whole group of folks. And so we'll read, I'm going to read just the first two sentences, and then we'll go through it a little slowly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's just two sentences. There's a whole lot going on in those two sentences, and so we probably won't get through two sentences this morning. So we're going to kind of go slowly and, and chew on it a little bit. So we, we know it's from Peter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's an apostle? You see a sign out there advertising that there's an apostle in that church. Y'all be wary because that person is claiming to have an eyewitness of Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's one of the qualifications of an apostle. You know, Jesus chose his 12, and they had been with him from the beginning. They had seen him, and one of them fell. That was Judas. He hung himself. And so later after Jesus had ascended, the apostles got together and said, we need to fill this office to have the 12th one. And so they cast lots. And so in that way, they chose, or God chose his replacement, but his name, Matthias, was one who had been there with them from the beginning. And so he had seen Jesus in the flesh and seen what he'd done. Now, Paul was called to be an apostle, but he was called later in time. He didn't see Jesus before he ascended up, but Jesus came and appeared to him in person in multiple visions. And apostles were chosen by God to be a special ambassador for him, and they were given signs and wonders and miracles to confirm that they were speaking on God's behalf. Okay, this was before you had the New Testament written, so you couldn't fact-check them against the New Testament yet, but they're allowed to do these signs and wonders, all right? 
So if you see that today, you can pretty much guarantee somebody's lying. All right? So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That word strangers means a resident foreigner. Resident foreigner. And the word scattered is a Greek word, uh, diaspora. I was an English kid in, high, in college, and we had to take a study on uh, African-American writers, and they would talk about the diaspora. You had all these individuals who were taken from Africa and how they'd spread across the world and how the different cultures reflected in these different groups wherever they, they landed. But they refer to that whole genre of literature as the diaspora, and that's a broad term, but it means those who have been scattered throughout. Okay? So you have resident foreigners scattered throughout. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is referring to Jews who have left Jerusalem because there was a great period of persecution. In the early church, uh, Jews were, the Christian Jews were hated, like absolutely hated. Um, and so they scattered. They scattered wildly, very, very far. But I don't think this is referring to Christian Jews. I think this is referring to non-Jews who are Christians, Christians who are scattered out. Because each of us, we are a stranger here. We are an alien, if you will. We're, we're citizens of a very fine country. This is a lovely country to be in. But in a sense, we're just, we're just passing through here. We're citizens of a much better country. And so in a sense, we're just, we're just strangers, pilgrims, sojourners. Okay? And so these are other Christians who are scattered throughout this large region. Now, if you've got your map in the back of your Bible, you can look to it. And you can look the area of modern-day Turkey. When Paul, on his missionary journeys, when he's traveling through Turkey, um, he's going to stick on the southern half of it, close to the Mediterranean Sea and about halfway up. And that's where he was led. Some of the times he tried to go to the northern half, and the Holy Spirit said, Nope, that's not where you're supposed to go. He tried it twice, and the Holy Spirit said, Nope. And it sent him over to uh, Greece, Macedonia. So when he went to Troas and he had the vision of the Macedonian man, all that, and he had a dream that said, um, come over here and help us also. And you can see this over in Acts chapter 16. All right, He never made it to that northern half. But here, Peter is writing to strangers, to these Christian believers, who I believe were not Jewish by background. I'll show you why in a minute. Um, to the northern half of Turkey. And if you look on your map, you know, the Black Sea is on the northern portion of Turkey. Right? You know where Ukraine is. Black Sea is on the southern portion of that. And then beneath that is Turkey. So if you start about the middle of that, that's where you'll find Pontus. And if you go around like a clock, you'll go Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all regions in the northern portion of Turkey. Now, do you have to know that real specifically for all this to make sense? No. <laughs> but it's best to have as much context as we can. All right, so this is written to places where there's not, hadn't been established churches that we, we don't see about that in the book of Acts. So we don't know exactly how these strangers got there, um, but they're there, and there's elders among them, and so they, he's writing this letter of, of encouragement and exhortation to them. Now, so why do I think they're not Jews? If you go down to verse 18 of chapter 1, He's discussing um, what you're redeemed by. It says, for, ye, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things 
as silver and gold from your vain traditions received from your fathers. All right, so there's a lot of idolatrous worship um, all over the world and within Israel itself, but um, there was not silver or gold that's redeeming you. Rather, it's the precious blood of the Lamb. So most likely the traditions from their fathers. I don't believe that's referring to Jewish traditions. I believe this is referring to whatever pagan or idolatrous traditions they had known beforehand, before they'd heard the truth. Same thing over in chapter 2. It says, talking to these people, it says, You're a chosen generation. This is verse 9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God. So Jews, before this, they had been referred to as the people of God. They, you know, but Gentiles, when you're describing them, Gentiles just means non-Jew, um, they, were, they weren't. They were, they were the other, right? So they, they were not a people before, but now you are a people. So you and I, when we're dead in trespasses and sins, we're just like the world. It's like we're, 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 we weren't. We weren't people. We weren't of the people, right? The family of God. And yet, when you're born again and you discover that he actually has adopted you, that you have become into his family. Okay, So these were most likely, again, based on those two verses, um, non-Jewish believers who are now um, believing and following Christ, and they're scattered. And this is a big region. This is half of modern-day Turkey. It's a big chunk of area that he is writing to. All right? Now, one side note. That word Gentiles, um, it can be translated two different ways from two different Greek words, both translated Gentiles. One, like here in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that Greek word is ethnos. It's what we get ethnicity from. It just basically means all the races, all nations. All right? It's a very broad category. And then elsewhere, in, depending on context, you can see it. Um, it means specifically Grecians or Hellenists, those who spoke Greek. Um, but both of them were shorthands for non-Jews. Okay. All right. So we know who's writing it. You know Peter. We know he's uh, grown up quite a bit. Um, he's actually writing from a very strange place. If you go to the last chapter in verse thirteen, he's sending greetings from somebody. He says, "The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you." He's writing from Babylon. That's kind of a strange place. Babylon, the nation that uh, you know was the capital of the nation that conquered the Jews and took them into captivity, you know, several hundred years beforehand, um, kind of the center for wickedness, and yet here there's a church in the middle of it. All right? So God's uh, not limited based on geographic location or, or how wicked a nation is. He's got His people. He has His remnant. Um, folks can get really upset about how uh, immoral and ungodly our nation is. And it is. But the Lord still has his people, and he still has his remnant, and he's going to continue to provide for them. If he can have a church in the middle of Babylon, he can continue to have his churches here. All right. So going back to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, those foreigners, um, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, 
grace unto you and peace be multiplied. All right, so big picture. You got three different things going on here in describing these individuals, these believers, right? They're called the elect, and they're called that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you're going to see the whole Trinity involved here. God the Father, according to His foreknowledge, through sanctification of the Spirit. And the sanctification means the being made holy. Right? This is when the Holy Spirit comes into you and makes you a new creature. All right? Unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All right? Foreknowledge of God the Father in choosing and selecting you, electing you. You've got the Holy Spirit coming in to you and making you born again a new creature. And the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is referring to Jesus' sacrifice, the atonement that he made for you. And that sprinkling uh, refers to, you know, it's an image that harkens back to the, the, the Passover and cleansing and the Old Testament rituals, but is um, you have been made clean, right? The, uh, the goat, the goat of atonement or whatever, they sprinkled the blood on the horns, right? It's, his work is being summed up in just a few words, all right? God the Father is involved. Through his foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit, through your sanctification in your life, and the Son, all right? The blood of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's start just the first word there. Elect. Ekletos. I can't speak Greek, doesn't matter. But the point is, that word means select, and implied as there, a favorite. All right? It's translated two different ways. It means chosen. A translated chosen or elect. This word appears 23 different times in the New Testament. There are a lot of folks who don't like that word. A lot of preachers who don't like that word. If it appears 23 times in Scripture, you need to study it. All right? We can't pick and choose things that don't fit our preconceived notions. 23 different times. All right. So it's either translated chosen or elect. And just, I'm going to go quickly to kind of give you a survey of them. It appears, um, you know, the wedding feast, when there was the, many were um, called, and the guy who didn't have the right garment there, and they cast it out. At the end of that, it would say, many are called, and few are chosen. Same word, elect, chosen, all right? Same thing um, with the, the man who gathered all the laborers and invited them to work for a penny, and he gathered more throughout the day and more throughout the day. After the end of that parable, Jesus would say, many are called, few are chosen chosen right same word um over in matthew 24 we'll flip there for now matthew 24 it'll appear several times this is referring to the final days when god is a uh, wrapping things up in the way that he sees fit matthew 24 and 22 and it's describing what 21 says, For there should be such great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. And that saved means to be uh, delivered and made alive, remain alive. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So when all those things that we don't really understand in Revelation all come to pass, and it's really, really, really hard, and things are really bad, if it continued on, there'd be no one left alive on the globe. All right. But he's saying that for the elect's sake, those chosen, those selected, um, it will be short. So not everybody's going to die at the end. All right. There will still be some alive at the resurrection. All right. Same thing a little bit later, down in 24, uh, verse 31, when Jesus um, 
Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, that's verse 30. Then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. All right, and these, each of these appears in mere form over in Mark 13. You can see the same, same language um, in Mark 13. Um, let's see. There's another reference uh, within this. We won't flip to it um, about the many false teachers are going to come and they're going to try to deceive if it were possible, uh, even the very elect. Um, over in Luke 18, another reference. Luke 18, verse 7. This is the parable of the, the unjust judge where the widow had to keep um, um, begging him to avenge her over and over again and finally he did just so she'd knock it off. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear with them. All right? So all of these references are referring to a group of people, individuals. All right? Now, not every time that the word is used does it refer to God's people. Sometimes it refers to Christ as his chosen. Um, two different examples. One's actually used in a mocking form. Um, Luke 23 and 35, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, um, you know, the people and the rulers who wanted him dead are mocking him. Luke uh, 23 and 35, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, deriding him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. The word chosen there means elect, selected, the favorite of God. If he's Christ, let him come down from the cross. Now, 1 Peter, which we're already talking about, but 1 Peter over in chapter 2 would use that same expression, but not ironically and not mockingly. First Peter 2 and 4, saying, Let's come into Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That precious means highly valuable. Chosen of God, Jesus Christ, the select, the favorite, the elect. All right. Now, we won't turn to it today, but there's a couple other spots you could look at of seeing things that characteristics of the elect over in Colossians 3, 22. Um, it talks about putting on um, as the elect the, the bowels of mercy. Um, Titus 1, 1 talks about something that the elect have, which is faith. I'll turn to that one. Titus. Timothy, yeah. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So that faith is something that only the elect can have. And that's an evidence that you are elect. You have faith. If you're able to believe, you can rejoice. The only reason you have that is because the Lord has given it to you. It's also used to describe um, certain angels. They're elect angels, and those are as opposed to those that fell, right? There's reference in Jude and Second um, Peter to the angels which kept not their first estate, um, that have left their habitation in serving God, and um, he's reserved those in darkness unto the last day. 
So, here's a whole lot of times. Let's go back to 1 Peter. It's elect. Elect how? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Alright? So, God the Father's the person in the Trinity that's here ascribed with the action of having foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Greek word there is prognosis. You've probably heard that used in medical terms. That's where a doctor guesses about the future. When Jesus, or God, has foreknowledge, there's no guessing. He knows. He knows in advance. He knows the future. Um, The root word of that means to know beforehand, to foresee, or to ordain. This word, as a noun, only appears twice in Scripture. Here and the other other time, is in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 23. And in that context, it's referring to Jesus himself. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, referring to Jesus. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel, all right, that's God's will, the appointed will of God, and the foreknowledge of God, his forethought. He had given forethought advance to this. It was going to happen. Determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So there's two different references for the foreknowledge. One being to the elect as the people, and one being to the work of Christ. Alright? It does appear a few other times as a verb. Um, once in Acts 26 and 5, where Paul is describing his peers, if they knew him before... He had had his conversion and the way he um, governed himself. And Paul was not a very nice fellow. Right, Connor? He was a, a persecutor of the church. He hated it so badly that he'd haul people off to jail. And so he's saying, if you'd called those folks in, you would have seen they could testify of how I had lived um, based on their knowledge beforehand. Um, go to 2 Timothy 1.9. Second Timothy one nine. So God knew his elect, and he knew them a long, long, long time ago. You know, how far back? Well before creation itself. Alright? In the beginning was um, was the word. No, that's the wrong one. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was without form. This is before then. He knew you before then. You can see this over in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We were given. We were given to the Son. The Father gave a people to his son before the world began. Got that same um, timeline expressed in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Um, the subject here being God the Father. Verse 4 says, According as he, God the Father, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So, 
before anything happened, before the world was made, before the heavens were made, before any stars or moon, God knew. He selected. He chose. He had his people, and he gave them to his son. He gave them to his son. You can see that um, in Romans 8 and 29. For whom he did foreknow to know in advance. He knew somebody in advance. He also did predestinate. That word predestinate means to predetermine their destination. Each one that he foreknew, he predetermined that they were going to be with him. Their destination was going to be with him in glory. And they wouldn't remain themselves like of this world, but rather they were going to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Who's the actor in all of those expressions? God. That's right. It's not me or you. It's him. All right. Over to Romans chapter 11 and verse 2. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. All right. This foreknowing. He knew in advance. All right. Now, knowing. God knows everything, right? That's, that's not a controversial statement. Um, you can see that real clearly at Psalm 147 and verse 5. Oops, a little bit farther. Psalm 147 and verse 5. Great is our Lord. And of great power, his understanding is infinite. Okay? Infinite understanding. Do you have infinite understanding? No. We are, we are by definition finite. Our very brains and capacity are, are limited, but he is not. His knowledge is unlimited. So, when it refers to God knowing his people, it's not just saying that he knows about them in his omniscience. He knows everything. and That wouldn't be any distinguisher. Right? There's something special about God knowing you. All right? um, we know that um, there's nothing that is hidden before his eyes. Um, there's nothing that you have that you could say or think um, that he doesn't know. Um, Hebrews 4 and 13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Right? So he knows. Right? He knows everything. He knows everybody in his omniscience. Omniscience means all-knowing. So what does it mean for him to know his elect? Know his, and again, the word elect implies favorite. So to know means to regard with favor. Right? Now, he does not regard everyone with favor. It is not a, a universal concept. Look in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never 
knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Okay? So there are those that in this sense, Jesus does not know. Does he, does he not know them at all? No, he knows them. He has omniscience, but he does not regard them with the special favor that he put upon his elect, the ones that his father selected before the foundation of the world. All right, you can see that again in Matthew uh, 25. There's a parable about ten virgins, some who had their oil for their lamps and some who didn't. They had to go out in the middle of the night and get their lamp oil, and by the time they came back, the doors had been shut um, from the bridegroom. And they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. So there are those that God knows and regards with his favor, and there are those that he doesn't. All right? You can see this very clearly in John chapter 10. Again, looking at it in the negative sense first. The Jews came round about him. That's verse 24. John 10, verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him to Jesus and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said, I told you, and ye believe not. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. All the miracles that he had been doing, they bear witness that he was the Christ. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Father knows them. He knows them. The Son knows them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So they came and they couldn't believe. They, they listened to the best preacher in the history of the existence and saw these miracles that no man had ever done. So much so that John said, you know, if I had to write them all down, the books of the world couldn't contain it. And they still didn't believe. And he told them, why? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep, I know them, and they follow me. And you can see that back a little earlier in that chapter. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of my sheep. It's a two-way street. You can know him because you, because he knows you. He regards you with his favor. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Not for everybody, but for the sheep. And this is the this is and other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's talking to a group of Jews. That was who Jesus came, and his ministry was for the Jews there, and it's going to be later in Paul's day that it's going to be expanded to the Gentiles. But here he's given that illusion that for, which is really good news for you and me. Because I don't know any of y'all who are naturally Jews by descent. But other sheep that he had, these are ones that the Father regarded with favor and gave to the Son, and he's going to bring them into his fold, that one family. He knows him. I know them. I know my sheep, and am known of mine. All right? You can see this knowing one other time over in 2 Timothy 2 and 19. Oh, John, you're kind of really harping on this. Well, it's important. There's a lot of Scripture that talks about it. And if it doesn't fit into our preconceived notions, we need to change our preconceived notions. We have to bend to Scripture, not the other way around. 2 Timothy 2, 
and 19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having the seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. All right? So the Lord knows his people. He knows his elect. He's known them from before the foundation of the world. He's regarded them with favor. Now, there are some misconceptions to this foreknowing, so let's try and address those. One misconception is that, well, well, God looked down through time, and he saw that some of those were worthy and some were not. And so he selected those that were worthy. Now, whatever you want to use for your definition of worthy, you know, did good works, accepted, you know, whatever, that's, that's a misconception, all right? In case nobody's told you, none of us are worthy. Right? Not a single one. And in fact, God did look down through time and said that there was none righteous. No, not one. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We are all under sin. Romans 3 and 9. And the context here is he's asking, you know, are Jews better than Gentiles? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. If he's looking down through time, so who's going to seek after me? The answer is none of them. Who's righteous? None of them. Who understands? None of them. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Y'all hearing a pattern here? It's pretty clear. He could not choose us because one of us was more worthy than the other. We're all equally unworthy. All right? And in fact, if your your standard is, well, who's going to come to him? If you look down the top, who's going to come? Well, the answer is that none of us would come unless he drew us. Uh, John 6 and 44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God's the initiator. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who draws you to them. He sends the Holy Spirit and awakens you. And when you start loving the Lord, it's because he loved you first. That's 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. All right? Now, our carnal self would want to know, well, why? Why did God select some and not others? And how did he pick? Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. It gives an example using an Old Testament illustration. Um, Rebecca, um, wife of Isaac, Mother of twins, Jacob and Esau. It says, For the children being not yet born, so she's still carrying them, and she had a rough pregnancy. Now she had been 20 years barren, now she's got twins, and she's having a rough pregnancy. So much so that she went to ask the Lord about it and says, You've got two nations fighting within you. All right? and, uh, and it was told her that the elder should serve the longer, younger. But it was told, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. Who's making the decision? God. 
not of anything that they're doing, but of his own sovereign will. Sovereign means the all-powerful, right? The boss, the one who is in control and doesn't have to answer anybody. It was said unto him, the elder, elder shall serve the younger. Now that's the exact opposite of what the culture then would say. The elder is supposed to get the best, right? And the younger is going to get basically what's left. But it was told her it's going to be the opposite. The younger, Jacob, is going to be the one um, who will rule. And that's how it happened. The whole nation grew out of it. Israel grew from Jacob. And the nation of Edom grew from Esau. And Edom was whooped by Israel. They, they were their servants for many, many, many years. Right? As is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Right? You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. You know what would be fair is if God hated us all. That would be fair. None righteous, no, not one. What's wild and amazing about grace, grace's unmerited favor, is that he bestowed it upon any of us. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so then Paul, like a good lawyer, argues what the other side will say. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Can you as his creature say that he, in showing mercy on some, is unrighteous? The answer is God forbid. You cannot. You as a creature can't look to God and say you're being unrighteous. God forbid. That's the strongest negative you could put out there. For he saith to Moses, God saith to Moses, this is in Exodus 33, 19 if you're curious, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth what you will, what you think, what you want, nor of him that runneth, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to earn God's favor, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. No, it's not what you want, it's not what you do. Not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Okay? His choice. He's a sovereign God. He gets to make those determinations. And so, if you can believe what Scripture says today, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that He came into this world in the flesh, and He suffered and died on the cross, if you can believe that today, then you're exceptionally blessed. Because He has given you faith, and that's a gift that He only gives to His elect. Right? Your faith doesn't make you His child, but it's a symptom that you are His child. Just like if my baby over here starts crying... The crying doesn't make her alive, right? But as long as she's crying, I know what? She's alive. Right? It's a symptom of it, but not the cause. If you have faith this morning, that's a gift of God, and you can know that you're alive. Right? He has given you that. And that's because the Father had foreknowledge of you before the world began. Your Heavenly Father knew you. And not just knew of your existence, but He knew you and loved you. And loved you enough to determine the manner in which he was going to redeem you from your sins. Which was very, very costly. Right? It required the blood of the second person in the Trinity come down incarnate. Right? Can you think of any higher cost? That's some pretty amazing love. So I think that's enough for today. I thank you all for your time and attention.